One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live... F1. Welcome to Miss Apex Podcast. This show is dedicated to the memory of Bill, a friend of our patron, Christopher Ford. And Christopher would like to encourage you to do something nice for someone else. So if everyone in the community could do that, we'd consider it a favor to Chris and Bill. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, and today we have a packed magazine show. We've got tech from the greatest tech man in F1 journalism. It is Matthew Summerfield, Summers F1, joining Matt Trumpet, and we'll be putting your questions to F1 strategist Mike Caulfield. And to end the show, I'll be asking Brad Philpot a seemingly simple question, which is, is it harder to drive a race car than it is to drive a go-kart now i'm assuming the answer is yes but the journey to getting there will be fascinating now normally i put the tech at the end of the show because then it's like stirring in broccoli into the kids lasagna but i'm a veteran dad now i've got a 10 year old and a 12 year old and things moved on my tactic with them for the last four or five years has been to say hey listen i don't like the veg either eat the veg first And then you can get to the good stuff. And over time, you know what? They figured out the veg is the good stuff. So that's why we're putting the tech up front. Don't worry, it's only half an hour. Then I'll be back with all the strategy and the race car stuff with Brad. But for now, I'm going to hand over to Trumpet and Summers for some tech. It's time for tech, and once again, our presence is graced by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, who is technical editor at Motorsport.com. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No worries, Matt. It's been a hot minute since we last spoke, and uh, there's obviously a lot gone on in between, so good to be back, and uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. And I would like to dive right into our topics today. Um, and I know there's going to be lots of flexi floor questions and break dust questions, but 
I want to talk about Mercedes because I learned a minor fact about them at the last race, which is that because they both cleverly crashed their cars in qualifying, they had to split up their single remaining floor amongst the two cars. How much do you think that affected them during the race? Or do you think maybe Mercedes has learned something new and interesting from this experiment? Well, I think one of the things that perhaps hasn't come across in great detail so far this season is the vast size of the floor is sometimes considered to be a little bit problematic for the teams in terms of uh, development. So what a lot of the teams are doing this year is they're using sort of like a patchwork quilt effect. So uh, the floor itself, you know, you've got the main uh, part of the floor, but then you've got individual parts of it that that can be interchanged with one another uh, in order to, you know, drive development forward without having to build an entirely new uh, floor structure uh, for each race or, you know, each development. So from a cost cap point of view, that's obviously quite beneficial. But from a racing point of view, it has indeed added some weight to the floors. And we have seen some of the teams making gains in that respect. Now, in terms of what Mercedes did with their sort of uh, let's patch two floors together scenario, they obviously had quite a bit of damage to those two floors. And as we saw with their rear wing scenario, they're not all, all, all the teams are not kind of carrying the, the full quantity of parts uh, through the course of the, the, the races uh, because of the cost cap. So there's lots of things going on in the background for teams to try to save money and also uh, to try to gain performance. Okay, well, happily, I am not the only person fascinated uh, by Mercedes. Uh, one question I, I do want to ask is that this was not supposed to be a track that favored them. And yet we saw, at least by my calculations, they were within about three, three and a half tenths or so on Lewis's car, which was carrying the proper rear wing for this particular setup. Are they back in the picture? I mean, and what have they done that has brought them back? Because they they were very inconsistent. And, and now suddenly they seem two races on the bounce to be back in the picture. Well, I think amongst the vast array of updates that we saw at Silverstone, perhaps the biggest batch of upgrades that we've seen for the entire season from almost every single team. Mercedes probably had one of the largest packages of parts. Um, so front to rear, you know, there's lots of things going on with that car uh, that they've tried to really optimise uh, their performance based on what they found in the opening part of the season. As we know, they went on to uh, do a lot of development work uh, with both cars to understand what was going on with the porpoising and the bouncing and then try to get the best from the package uh, with those uh, issues uh, in tow. So we've seen them change quite a few components. And on top of that, I think they've just got a better operating window with the car now. Um, one thing that I do think that is perhaps holding them back, though, is the way in which that they work their tyres. Uh, you do see throughout the course of a stint that they tend to be very slow in the opening phase because they just can't t warm up the tyres. And then as they build into the race, they become much stronger compared to their uh, rivals because they're starting to deg before Mercedes are. So there's sort of a bit of an offset there with the tyres and performance. Right. Well, that's a very interesting point. Um, and, and to that point, because I was going to ask, is the warm-up a fundamental issue or is it perhaps a strategic choice? Because in the past, certainly Mercedes has been plagued by degradation issues. Is this just an overcorrection or is this uh, it's going to always be a bit of that choice for any team under this regulation set? 
I think Mercedes kind of built that into this car from the start. I think if you look back at the earlier races, they also struggled with tyre warm-up. It's not something that's uh, really been corrected or, or caused us a more of a problem with just this upgrade. It's something that they've always had. It's just that the upgrade has kind of brought them further forward into the field and now everybody can really see where that tyre deg is starting to pay off in terms of you know uh, the, the, the problem that they have at the start of a stint, but then the better longevity that they have on the tyre. Okay, well, we have some specific listener questions. Kabilo Sello wants to know, if Mercedes are running their cars at lower power modes uh, compared to Red Bull and, and Ferrari and what difference it might make if they were to turn that power unit up. And uh, Graham Patmore is also interested, but he's hearing things about the rear suspension and how it's working with the stiff chassis. Have they brought new suspension and how would it improve what we've seen in the past? Okay. So going first off with the suspension thing, because I think that's more important in terms of performance directly what we're seeing uh, on the track obviously Mercedes had a major problem with porpoising and bouncing and I feel that their rear suspension uh, more so than the front suspension was a bit of an issue in this area and it appears that they have made changes in that respect in order to improve uh, the operating window you know give them more setup options allow them to run the car uh, in a way which is conducive to getting the, the level of downforce that they're looking for at the different tracks and I think that's where they struggled in the opening phase of the season that they just didn't have enough top end um, to be able to make these adjustments and that's why they obviously were struggling with with the the ill effects of porpoising and bouncing but in terms of the power unit side of things and I think this is indicative of not just Mercedes, but obviously their customers as well. What we're seeing is that they are slightly down in terms of performance when you measure them against the other power unit suppliers. But they're also a little bit better when it comes to the degradation of the power unit components. So it's a bit of cat and mouse. They've perhaps lost some performance relative to their rivals, but they're not perhaps going to have to take the penalties that their their rivals will do later on this, in this, in the season. Yes, I think I saw someone quip at one point, the best ability is reliability. And so that seems to be the um, course that they've taken. Yeah, it would appear that way to me, that they just edged their bets onto being better over the course of a season. But that has obviously hampered them in terms of direct performance slightly. Okay. Uh, Now, I'm going to take a slightly weird detour because you mentioned a little bit ago that Mercedes has been working very hard to optimize their setup with what they have, and that's been important. And that weirdly reminds me of Haas because, to my understanding, they've not brought any updates at all, and they've been almost entirely focused on optimizing what they brought at the beginning of the year. And yet we've seen them sort of start out a bit strong, struggle, and now suddenly they have really come on, and especially in Austria. And how exactly, what are they focusing? How are they finding this time without bringing developments while the rest of their rivals are, and yet they're still being successful? It's a case of perhaps having a good car out of the box, as we saw at the very beginning of the season and certainly in pre-season testing. Uh, But then they didn't seem to migrate with the rest of the grid in understanding how to then get the best from the car uh, over the course of the next few races. Since then, we've kind of, as you mentioned, not really seen much from them in terms of development. We've seen the odd rear wing, uh, which is more about circuit specificity, um, if I can get my words out. Um, But... 
you know, they haven't gone on and changed a huge amount in terms of aerodynamic performance. They've gone on and tried to find performance through setup. Um, and, and for me, again, it, it does bleed back towards tyres and, and what they're able to do on the tyres, both in terms of performance over one lap and also over the course of a race. Okay. And thank you to Aditya Joshi for that last question. Um, I'd like to move on, unless I've missed anything Mercedes-wise and talk a little bit about the marquee matchup right now, which is Ferrari versus Red Bull. And it still looks like a concept fight to me. Ferrari have stuck to their higher downforce guns, and Red Bull have worked very hard to develop their slippery but fast concept. So where are we with Ferrari and their development? Are they taking more of a Haas path in terms of taking their time with introductions to save money? Or... Are they kind of like Red Bull throwing it all against the wall race after race? No, I mean, Red Bull are literally throwing the kitchen sink at things, as we've seen from in the past, them in the past. They are very uh, reliable at that style of development. They will chuck stuff at the car as quickly as possible to try to remedy and then finesse and optimise parts around the car that they feel will give them the biggest advantage in terms of gains. Whereas Ferrari are a bit more methodical in their approach to development. Uh, Their car was, as we know, very quick out the box. Um, It perhaps has less of a high ceiling in terms of being able to be developed, Uh, but they have bought parts recently that I do believe has made quite a significant difference to them in terms of their fight against uh, Red Bull. The biggest being their new rear wing, which Leclerc had in Canada and has since now found its way onto Science's car over the, the last couple of races. And it gives them more of an offset in terms of DRS um, versus uh, the, uh, the the wing not being uh, used with DRS. So effectively, that improves their qualifying performance, um, but it doesn't give them a massive deficit in terms of race pace uh, because of the way that that wing is designed. Uh, in terms of Red Bull, they've tried to do similar, uh, but they haven't done so, so much with their upper rear wing elements. They've just ditched one of the elements on the beam wing. So there's a lot of work going on between the two in terms of optimization and trying to find performance. But like you say, they are kind of going about it in very different ways. And that might play out in Ferrari's favour as we come towards the end of the season if we consider the resource restrictions and the cost cap that are also in place. Well, we actually have a question about that from Phil McWilliams for Ferrari, asking if they're going to have to fix Sainz's car from within the budget cap, or is there perhaps a force majeure clause that in in rare circumstances will allow the team to take a different budget? No, they'll have to fix that within the scope of the cost cap. And obviously, um, it was a significant amount of damage, just as um, the the crash for uh, Zhao was at Silverstone. Uh, That more so is problematic because of what happened with the roll structure uh, and the monocoque in terms of the damage there. But... um, These are the scenarios that obviously play out within Formula 1, and all of the teams have to work this into their budgets. Ferrari, unfortunately, do appear to have had more damage compared to Red Bull, which when you think about it, that is going to play against their development budget. So, you know, it's, again, that's why we're seeing a difference between them in terms of what they're putting onto their car because they're having to factor this in to being under the budget cap come the end of the season. Yes, well, imagine if Maldonado was still driving. I think Williams would have to retire for the season at this point. Yeah, I mean, it could be quite costly, couldn't it? We've had this discussion, uh, Matt's had this discussion in the past, 
uh, Matthew Carter uh, when he had two certain drivers at Lotus and, and you just think about the impact that uh, damage can have on a season and um, the, the cost involved. Right. Well, I think one of the interesting things for everybody was in, in Austria specifically was how far off, how badly Red Bull really just seemed to miss the mark. I mean, even when they haven't been as fast as Ferrari, they haven't been as slow as they were at, at this specific track. So what do you think happened? And in fact, Joe would like to know specifically, what did Red Bull change that screwed up their tire degradation in Austria? So thank you for mentioning tires there, Joe. I think it's a combination of factors. I think um, we've we've got obviously track conditions. We've got uh, the tyres themselves. Remembering the compounds that we're running at, uh, we have five specific compounds, and obviously we had the softest uh, three compounds available in Austria. We have the consideration of the um, the variables around tyres, such as the minimum tyre pressures. Uh, which has an impact on how you operate the car. And then I think you've also got to factor in that perhaps Red Bull went to try to defend against Ferrari in some respects. Uh, this is a tactical battle that we've seen in the past with Red Bull and Mercedes. We've just kind of seen a switch around this season in many ways in that Ferrari have taken Mercedes' place uh, and now they're trying to fight against one another. So they make changes to the car to suit how they're going to fight uh, their, their rival rather than just perhaps getting on with their own job at hand. Uh, and that is perhaps where Red Bull fell into a bit of trap here at Austria. Uh, but, it, it, you know, we have to remember that certain cars will just be better at certain circuits and perhaps this particular track altitude as, re- as well remember is a factor at this particular track being 700 meters above sea level uh, perhaps that might have played into to ferrari's hands versus red bull on this particular occasion right so would i be wrong then in assuming that for all intents and purposes developments aside that the two cars are more or less equal and that on any given weekend is going to come down to does one track suit one car and does one team really just nail the setup on relative to the other? Yeah, I do feel like that they are pretty much on par with one another. I know that, you know, you, during the races, we see AWS's um, version of what, how, how the performances increase throughout the, 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 the course of the season. And it appears that they always have Ferrari at the top. Well, I would gamble to say that perhaps Red Bull have the better car overall. Um, rather than Ferrari, but they are very nip and tuck. And as you say, it comes down to multiple variables at the particular circuit and obviously which driver has a better uh, command of the car during that race weekend. Uh, It's been nip and tuck in occasions between Sainz and Leclerc going through different sessions. And that's another thing, how they learn throughout the course of the practice sessions can also be uh, a considerable benefit from one car or one garage side to the other uh, in getting the best from the car. Right. Now, one thing that I did hear across the course of the weekend was that the Red Bull ring is a bit more of a rear limited circuit and that that benefited because of the way Ferrari chose to run their car that tended to benefit Ferrari more than Red Bull. And so in a sense, uh, it's like an axle battle, rear axle versus front axle. And uh, our listener, Fragel would like to know, what is the best publicly available resource of front rear limited tracks and front rear limited drivers and cars? And uh, I have yet to find it, but if you know of one, now would be the time. The answer to that question is I don't think there's anywhere out there that has that 
available as, as information. Um, just to give you an idea, the or at least Max's interpretation of the RB18 is that he is limited front end. He he he's struggling with understeer with with the RB18, and I believe that's why uh, Checo perhaps has made reference to the fact that the car is going in Max's direction because Red Bull are probably highly focused on dealing with that situation, and that is probably hurting Checo because of the way that he works the tires differently to Max. So that's obviously the problem that you get with different drivers and their innate driving styles. Yes, they they can adapt, and yes, they are probably not too far apart from one another, but you do see that uh, cars will trend in the direction of one particular driver from a circuit to a circuit and as you mentioned obviously we do have front and rear limited circuits uh, up and down the calendar so that he's also going to play into that factor as well all right great so let's move on as they say to the main course which has to be the flexible floor and i assume by floor people here mean plank controversy that has just been dominating maybe not even appropriately but dominating the technical news at least from the television commentary point of view we have ruland and timmy both asking for a basic explanation of what the advantages are how it was discovered and uh is it just red bull and ferrari okay so first up as you mentioned I don't call it a flexi floor because to me, as, as as an understanding for most people, if you talk about a flexi floor, they're going to think about the carbon element of the floor. Whereas what we're actually talking about here is the plank, which is the, the, the lowest point on the bottom of the car. Now, if you flip the car upside down, which we fortunately have plenty of pictures of that now because of uh, Joe's crash in Silverstone and of other cars when they've been on the cranes and low loaders being recovered over the course of the last few races. Um, If you flip that car upside down, what you will see is that there are six holes embedded in the floor itself. Um, Those holes are used in order to measure both deflection and if there is any damage to the floor over the course of the race. Now, this is something that was brought in, you know, in 94, you know, a long, long time ago, in order to prevent the teams from being able to uh, run their cars in such a way that they were basically running below the the, the given limit. Now, basically, these holes that are in the, the floor, there's three at the front end of the plank, and they are put on the, the rig, and they can't the, the plank can't deflect more than two millimeters when it's on the rig. In terms of the uh, the wear on the plank, the plank must be nine millimeters, and it can wear no more than one millimeter once you've obviously gone through the, the race conditions. Now, what is understood is that teams are using some flexible material around the skid blocks that are are in the region of these particular holes. And that allows the uh, plank to flex more so than it would do um, under normal conditions. Now, what the FIA's new technical directive covers off is a percentage around the periphery of this particular hole, whereas it hasn't in the past. So what teams have been doing is they've been creating a section of the hole that doesn't typically wear um, this one millimeter or, or, or even more than the one millimeter so effectively what they're doing is that they're, they're creating a section in the hole that 
doesn't that out that flexes more than it should do um and effectively um gaining themselves an advantage in the fact that they can come into contact with the track more so than they would be able to if they weren't using this particular type of uh, flexi plank okay and i assume then that gives them a right height advantage they can run it lower with less wear exactly that so it's not only the floor that we have to consider here as well so if you think about the the previous generation of cars we ran at a higher rake angle because that was advantageous in terms of gaining downforce the current cars you run pretty much flat because there's a there's a higher degree of performance to be found in 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 that measure but if you also can get the front of the plank closer to the ground you'll increase performance locally on the floor but you will also lower the front wing which also puts that further into ground effect so there are benefits to be found there so yeah it's a it's a big gain if you can get it um but we're talking in very small margins so i'm not expecting the massive reset that i think people are anticipating Uh, i think a lot of people are anticipating that it's really going to drag ferrari and red bull back down the pack by over a second Uh, but i don't think that we will see that kind of uh, of problem for them it's going to be a marginal difference Uh, but it will obviously have an impact on on the teams all right then um Sebastian Vettel has become renowned in the paddock for his support for environmental causes. And he recently spoke out on what I would consider to be, as an American, uh, a pretty big OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Standards, violation. It seems like the Formula One drivers have just been inhaling carbon dust from their brakes. And not just this generation of cars. Uh, The article I read referenced Botas in 2019, and I believe even Mika Salo discovering by accident. So our listener, uh, Bryson Sullivan, asked, regarding this problem, would it be possible to extend the duct exit backwards and dump the outflow of the air directly into the tire wake and keep this dust away from the drivers? In other words, is there, do you think, an aerodynamic solution to this mechanical problem? Okay, so... It's basically an aerodynamic solution to resolve some of the issues that we had with the previous generation of cars in the first place. So let's just rewind slightly and remember that uh, previously teams used the brake ducts as a way as flowing airflow out through the the wheel face. Uh, They used them like a bypass duct, and that helped to improve the outwash, which this set of regulations has tried to remove from existence effectively that's why we've got wheel covers and it's why you can no longer dump all of this airflow out through the wheel face now what they must do is use a a sort of open scoop on the rear face of the end fence which is more in line with the driver's face if you if you look at the the overhead shot now unfortunately the teams will always try to gain an an aerodynamic advantage uh, which means that they are shaping these air scoops in a way in which that is beneficial to them from an aerodynamic perspective in gaining performance unfortunately for the drivers that aerodynamic performance is pushing this airflow in towards the cockpit and with it that comes the brake dust so we've got a a compounding problem because we've created a set set of regulations to try to limit limit the aerodynamic impact but we've now created a new problem and so 
I think what will happen is the regulations will perhaps be looked at and tried to resolve through the change of the dimensions and position of the scoop. But in doing so, it might actually advantage the teams from an aerodynamic perspective. So it's a bit of a push and pull in terms of finding a resolution to the problem whilst also not giving the teams another aerodynamic advantage. Right. Well, my immediate question, um, although I do love aerodynamic solutions, is why could we not just simply use a simple uh, electrostatic filter, for example, to pull the to pull the carbon out of that airstream before it, it bothers to exit? Uh, do you think they might also look at something like that? It's a possibility. I think they'll look at several solutions. I mean, <laughs> the obvious solution is to uh, go back to steel brakes, isn't it? But we we know that's not happening. Um, that I think there's there's things that can be done under the basis of these new regulations. Um, but it's the it's the unintended consequence of making changes now without doing the requisite CFD and wind tunnel work that was gone into creating this set of regulations. You know, we're making an ad hoc change to something on the fly uh, and, and that could be damaging in the short term. I think we need to look at a long-term solution rather than a short-term solution. Well, I could not argue with that. So um, let's move on to the midfield. And the battle that I really want to talk about, not because one of my favorite drivers is involved, of course, but because it's the top of the midfield. It's Alpine versus McLaren. And I'm reading, uh, I don't know if this is true, but I'm reading that McLaren is completely done development-wise for the year, except for possibly upgrading the meat puppet behind the wheel. And Alpine apparently is just getting started. Is this the Otmar effect finally coming into play for Enstone? Well, I think that's been a bit overplayed in terms of McLaren, to be honest, because my understanding from what I've read from James Key is that they are still continuing development and they will continue development throughout the course of the season. But obviously, they are also looking at the effects that they have to manage in terms of designing next year's car as well. So there's a lot going on in terms of development for McLaren. Uh, They have been a little bit slower than those around them in terms of deploying upgrades but i think that's because they're they're constantly thinking about the ramifications that it might have further down the season and of course if they're involved in crashes and so on and so forth then they really do have uh, some problems in terms of being able to manage that budget going to alpine they've gone on the aggressive end of the spectrum uh, and we've seen a huge raft of changes made to the car over the course of the last few races Uh, they've migrated towards uh, a sort of a dual version of the Red Bull and Ferrari side pod. Uh, they've gone even lower downforce on their rear wing, uh, and they've made a, a multitude of other changes to floors, etc., to try to to gain performance. And it, and it has made a significant effect. How much further they can drag out of this car, whilst not compromising next year's car, will be very interesting. Uh, but whilst the sun is shining, as they say, make hay. All right, then. So in this particular battle, do you think now Alpine has the development advantage? I think it's a a seesaw effect. We're seeing them at the top end of the seesaw right now, and we could see McLaren bring something over the course of the next few races that really benefits them for the circuit uh, circuits that we're visiting. So I do think they're kind of almost at, at, at a level stage in terms of where they are from a car development point of view but having said that i i'm really really interested in the direction that alpine have taken because it is quite an aggressive route 
Yeah, it, it is. And I'm going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum now. We've seen Williams introduce a big update. Is there even a glimmer of hope for them is what I would ask. How is the new update working? And do you think they can actually begin to get on par and score points? Yeah, I mean, I think Williams had a very similar situation to Mercedes in that they chose a very aggressive solution that they thought would work extremely well with the new regulations whilst maintaining some of the effects that you would have seen under the previous set of regulations. I'm talking about very narrow side pods. However, that then limits your setup window uh, and to go on further, it also has an impact on things like tyre wear and degradation and uh, the performance uh, over the course of one lap. So dialing in the car over the course of the weekend became extremely difficult and Williams realised almost immediately that this was the wrong route and decided to travel down a different path. Uh, having done so um, early on in the season. Uh, And they moved more towards what you would consider to be a Red Bull style of design with their side pods. So it's almost, I'm not saying they gave up on the original solution. It's just that they found immediately more performance in in, in CFD and the tunnel from going down a different route. And it was, you know, that they had to make a decision. Do you press on and try to get performance from the car like Mercedes have done? Or do you go for something that's a little bit more benign in terms of uh, setup during the course of a race weekend? Uh, And I think that's what Williams have decided to do uh, for the the remainder of this season. Okay. Um, So I'm going to take that as, yes, there is a glimmer of hope. And I would put them, therefore, in the same bucket as Aston, who I assume are also still struggling to understand fully the uh, changes they have made to their car. The Red Bull car, yes. Yes, the the Red Bull car that they developed on their own. That's the one. Um, But can we talk about maybe the most disappointing car to me on the grid, which is the Alfa Romeo? Because by all accounts, it looks really, really fast, but they have struggled so, so much to put together the points I think they deserve. What is happening with... What is happening with them? Is this a car thing? Is this a driver thing? Or is this just a Ferrari power unit reliability thing? Uh, Again, probably a combination of factors, but more so to do with the car itself in being able to extract performance from it. It does seem a car that, uh, again, has sort of a switch on and switch off kind of attitude to it. It, At one moment, it looks like it's going to blow the doors off of everything. And then the next moment, it it, it shrinks back uh, into non-existence. So um, as you say, it is disappointing to see because there are a lot of interesting developments uh, on that particular car. But again, I think it's very much in the realms of what we've seen from Mercedes and Williams and have just talked about is that it's a difficult car to to try to get in the operating window because when once it's there, it then suddenly slides out of it and then you've got to overcorrect uh, and follow that migration throughout the course of the race weekend. And uh, I think that's where perhaps Alfa Romeo have have struggled uh, with that car this season. Okay, so this is actually a complaint that I I think I've heard uh, mentioned with Red Bull compared to Ferrari as well, that Ferrari is a bit more benign in its setup envelope uh, relative to the Red Bull being sharper. We're coming up to France, Paul Ricard. What kind of a track is that? Who do you think might have the sort of concept advantage on this track? Is it more front limited, more rear limited? Where are we headed? Well, I always think that Paul Ricard is a bit of a, an outlier in many ways because 
there's not another track out there like it, is there really? Um, in its nature, uh, I personally feel that it probably will be more beneficial for Ferrari, uh, based on the fact that, um, you know, it is a high speed circuit with tight radius corners, and we know that the, the Red Bull tends to suffer with more understeer. Uh, I'm not going to say chronic, but, you know, more understeer. And so, yeah, for me personally, I feel that we might see more on Ferrari. But I also think that we shouldn't really sleep on Mercedes as well, given how much their performance has increased over the course of the last few races. Well, excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Summers. Where can people look for you on the socials? Well, as always, the best place is over on Twitter, and it's Summers F1. Excellent. And I think now we're going to head back to Spanners, who has a special guest in the shed for us. Hmm. Those are some good vegetables. Hope you enjoyed that. Matt's still with me, but we are going to be speaking to a special guest in the shed. Someone who knows exactly what it's like to to make those difficult decisions that we all criticise from our sofa. Of course, everyone knew that you should definitely have, have pulled Leclerc in at that safety car. Of course, it's so obvious. Now, pass me more popcorn. But we know somebody who has been there making those decisions. Returning to the shed is Mike Caulfield joining us. Hello, Mike. Where are you joining us from in the world? Uh, afternoon. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm at home in sunny Oxfordshire. Ah. Oh, too, too hot Oxfordshire, to be honest, at the moment. It's... Um, <laughs> And need the air conditioning of a, of a nice um, trackside truck. Yeah, well, no, we, we well we have air conditioning in the shed, but I can't use it while we're recording because it makes too much noise. But what what are conditions like when you're in a trackside truck? Uh, they're they're pretty decent. Um, yeah, it's it's like your it's in your car air conditioning unit basically. When you're in those trucks, they're pretty nicely climatized. Um, I mean, a little story, if you if you if you don't mind me telling oh, it, is obviously is, is um, one one ex well one seven time world champion um, <laughs> liked her didn't like it too cold in the truck. Um, not the current one, the the one who's now retired. Ah. Um, he he often had um, yeah. I think his his conditions were that the truck had to be about 26, 27 degrees because um, it, you'd get it'd get ill with the because of the change of conditions of going from being really hot in the car to coming to an air conditioned truck. He, he thought you'd get ill, so uh, the truck then had to um, yeah cater to his his needs which meant quite uncomfortable working conditions for everyone else but it's um yeah i guess he's the talent so yeah, yeah. oh so. wow yeah that's oh uh, it's interesting if he'd have done it for comfort but that he thought it would actually you know make him make him sick yeah i would have found that yeah. frustrated as well uh but for for you know more recent drivers they're all happy to to go into some aircon ice especially like singapore yeah. it must be like such a relief to go into aircon yeah, I mean Singapore's a little bit different because obviously you don't have the trucks there. You're, you're in the kind of um, purpose-built buildings, um, and those ones are definitely a bit more hot and humid because you you literally you'll, you'll have an office which has a an air conditioning unit in it, but then you also have twenty guys with twenty laptops and 
faulty monitors and servers running in the room. So Very that tend to overpower the air conditioning <laughs> unit in that sense. And yeah, it, it, it's not really that comfortable in the end. So while we're talking about driver conditions, can you give us any insight to things like, you know, Kimmy, you must you must not have the drink and stuff like that. How how much of a, um, a factor is it whether the drivers drink or not and how much water they had? Certainly we heard a, a couple of seasons ago, didn't Alonso go without water for the Singapore Grand Prix to save some weight? Um, it's it's not unusual for, for that to, to happen. I mean, a lot of guys, a, a lot of them, yeah, it, it is because I think the maximum generally is it's about one and a half kilos, but one and a half kilos can make a difference um, in terms of the water. And I think a lot of the systems in there, I, I've, I've, I'm not going to mention names, but there's one driver in the past who wanted just to get rid of it totally. Um, really? like, because obviously it's a case of it's not just the, the liquid water it's all the mechanisms which comes which allows it to pump through and then, so it's actually more weight and so he said I don't have a drink from it anyway it's usually broken it tastes like warm tea it's crap what's the point of having it take it out and I think at the time they, it didn't happen just purely on that fact of well from a health and safety point of view we can't in good <laughs> knowledge not like give you a drink to do it so it's yeah, um, got a duty but, of care Hey, hey. I think the, 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 I never, I've never met a driver though who's actually said that they tend to drink. They, they don't really drink much in it um, because it, it tastes awful. It's usually warm. It's usually, um, yeah, it's they're, they're concentrating, they're, they're sweating out anyway. But, and yeah. more often than not, the most comments you hear about the drink package is that it's leaked and it's soaking all the fruit over them. And, um, and it's actually, yeah, it's, it's a waste of time. Well, well, our normal game that me and Matt play when someone won't name a person is to just keep throwing out names and then try and look at <laughs> eye movements. But we, we, won't, we won't do that, Mike, because we've got a bunch of questions from people on Twitter. There are some, some really, really good ones. So thank you to everyone who responded to that and basically you know, did my job for me. But actually, I do have a question first, because we had a, a conversation about Verstappen's tyre wear. And I think I wasn't clear enough. I think it might have been construed that i was saying max verstappen can't tire save that's clearly not true he's a talented enough driver to do it but i think it's clear that he he seems to have a preference to now give me new boots let me push and so i'm just wondering how much strategy is influenced by a driver's preference and abilities especially at red bull where you've got maybe different preferences on either side of the garage i mean it very much depends on on the type of race so more often than not this comes into a factor is like if it is a very borderline two three stop or one two stop kind of thing where it's um the situation is that okay it's a one stop and the two stop is very close but the one stop you can have to manage the tires where the two stop you can go flat out more drivers than not i think would preference the um you've got to got to push out Mm. Yeah, so it's i'm I'm always happier to try and drive the car on the limit to attack and, and push it um, but it also as well depends on the situation you're in. If you're sometimes there's that situation where going and doing the one stop and managing it, especially when more people maybe convert to a two, might gain you those extra positions. So if you're maybe slightly out of position, it gains you that option to 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 gain positions which you wouldn't otherwise get if you're doing the same strategy you ever are. So it actually very much depends on on what um what 
the strategies across the field are who you're racing against, what they're kind of doing. Because if, if yeah. you obviously do like for like against someone else, you're likely to stay in the same position. So to try and beat someone, you'll you'll often go for the other uh, aspect. So really, that's the more dominant factor rather than the driver's preference. So do drivers ever just, you know, come in a little bit upset because you've gone, right, we need to get him out of traffic on, say, lap 16. Now make these last till the end of the race. And it does. It seems like the miserable option. So do drivers ever come in and go, hey, Mike? I mean, 100%. Yeah, I mean, especially if you pull them in, they've tried to manage and then ended up being passed by six cars who have done the attacking two stop. Then, yeah, obviously, it's not exactly <laughs> yeah. the right call to do in that sense. So they will be very upset in that one. But... Vice versa, if you do it and you manage to hold on to the end and you've gained position against four cars who converted to a two stop, yeah, you'll suck it up. End, yeah. end of the day is the end result, which will will dictate their happiness. And um, yeah, in in that respect, or or another driver who I won't name, um, who complained massively that um, uh, we had him out on a set of six yard lap tires, which blistered massively, but he got a really good result from it. But then came in and said, "Never do that to me again." So I was like, "Which one do you want? Do you want to finish? Do you want, do you want to finish in the top five, or do you want to finish 12th? It's, I mean, I could have quite happily pitted you again, but you wouldn't have finished in the result you would have done. So, so. Magnuson. Oh, you got it right the first time. Yeah, okay, you know, is it? <laughs> Fantastic. Um, we've got a question from our, our listener, Matthew Trumpets, out here in uh, in. Um, America, I believe. Uh, yeah, that would be me. <laughs> Thanks for having me on briefly. Uh, no, I'm curious because I know you must watch these races and you are the strategy expert here. And I'm curious, like how often you find yourself second guessing calls and oh. most specifically, which team do you most often go, wait a minute, what were you thinking when you did that? Yeah, don't ruin any employment chances for the future, Mike, <laughs> but are you as bad an arm chess strategist now that you're yeah, sitting on the sides? I don't want to say I am. Um, I mean, I will look at things, but I'm, I'm still lucky enough that I do have all, access to all the data, so oh, I can course, go back and yeah. review it. Um, but I, I, I think I've mentioned it to you before, if, if not other people, but I know I haven't been in that situation and the amount of conversations going on, we don't get all the data, we don't get, but potentially there's there's a um, car might have a slow puncher or something, which is why the pits yeah. in and that way. And instead you think, well, why has he done that? Or, or there's an issue with the, the, some reliability issue or maybe a bit of front wing damage. And you, you sometimes don't know the full the full story behind why, why teams have done it. So I try not to be too kind of judgmental in in that aspect try. Um, I, I see but, try like you've not ma- succeeded completely no i mean I, i'll always look <laughs> at things and, and then I, again at the same time i'll like if i don't have the data live i'll try not to jump at it and be up mm. in arms straight away but there are obviously i mean going back to obviously two races ago there was one quite standout thing which i think we'll come on to which was um having stood out of me straight away going Okay, it was it was strange. Well, I tell you what, then that that leads me to which questions, which listener questions, I should I should go to next, Mike, because there is several along the lines of uh, Ferrari. Justin's question is Ferrari. That's it. That's the question. Just Ferrari. Uh, Kevin has asked. We heard Ferrari decide on Plan E for Carlos in the race. So, so a Ferrari like overdoing it is that the is is that the push push to extreme? Wallace asks, what's going on at Maranello, and is it salvageable? Salvageable. And Tom's question is, how do you become an F1 strategist? Because I can literally do better from my armchair. A little bit tongue in cheek there, I'm sure from Tom. Um, yeah. So lots of questions. Uh, 
about Ferrari. I mean, do you, do you have a, t- a take on that? And, and I guess from your answer, will we can gauge uh, how likely you think you are to be a Ferrari strategist in the future, I suppose? <laughs> um, I mean, going back on that, like, first thing about Ferrari, it's obviously, it's a massive team. And I think even going back to the days of the Schumacher and, and that, you, you've got, you've got basically the, the nation's pressure on you because if you make a big call, like, I mean, I know it's, again, it's massive criticism in this country, so I haven't even looked into what the um, what the Italian press is saying about it. Um, oh, good I'm, point. I'm not, sure, yeah. I'm not sure if you have, but I, I do know from past experiences, but obviously you, you see the, um, apologies, I forget the year wrong, was it the, tw- the 2010 when Alonso lost out in Abu Dhabi or was that 2012? 2012, when he couldn't overtake... Uh, when he Petrov. Petrov, yeah. Was that 2012? Yeah. Well, it was no, that was 10. That oh, was 2010, okay. It? Yeah, yeah. But so obviously, and then straight after that was, I mean, that was, yeah, disastrous strategy call. And then yeah, I think, I can't remember the amount, but it was probably three or four high-profile roles got, um, heads were chopped off. So it's that's mm. that's the kind of, I don't know if Ferrari's still going on that mentality or they've decided to change that kind of culture a little bit because obviously that, type of pressure working in is is, is a difficult aspect so I don't know if that pressure is still on and strategy is a high pressured role and you don't need the additional pressure of I'm going to lose my job if I create this issue well I I want to interrupt briefly because obviously you you worked at Mercedes and they sort of famously had talked about a no blame culture and you feel like maybe Ferrari like you're describing by the press or the management is is the opposite of that was that true at Mercedes that that they really did have that constructive no blame environment yeah um I'd say that's fairly true um it was I mean it was very it was very much a kind of culture of Right, we're not going to blame it. I mean, obviously, passions run high, and yeah. then you might get a, initially the, a bit of kind of yeah. finger Oi. pointing, <laughs> for, like unhappy people in the garage. You might say something there, there, and everywhere. But once it comes down to the Monday, you're like, oh, right, let's look at the data. What did we do? What can we do to make sure we don't do this again? And it was used as a learning experience. So, and there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't any ever any occasions. Like, I mean, you look at the structure of how Mercedes been set up, and it's basically the same trackside group give or take for the last 20 years so it's it's one of those aspects where um yeah it's mm. it, it is a no blame culture it's uh used as a learning experience and and it's like anything in life i think in like in any job as well is you will make mistakes it's a sport at the end of the day it is a sport you'll make mistakes just try not make the same mistake twice or in consecutive occasions that's that's the main thing you've got to do do with it and you're always going to make some mistakes because there's so many options and choices and unknowns that that come up and you can never be 100% certain in some of the calls you're going to make it's it's yeah. that's that's the way it is and that's what the beauty of the sport is is if everything was done perfectly and manufactured and by computers we'd have very dull races because everyone would get it spot on and and it would that'd be it yeah but again you can't go the darth vader route and you know kill one general and then go right take away the body general you know you can't have that kind of sinister management matt no of course not no and and when i go talk about ferrari i don't 100% 100% know if that that culture still exists that that was kind of a, yeah. a ferrari of the past what i hear is obviously with the latest with with bonotto in charge and it's it's they are progressing and building and and i think the like the strategy group there is is fairly young i mean i think it's um it's a quite i'm not going to say inexperienced because i think it's a fair but like it's it's they, they haven't been in this championship fight 
properly for for a long time. So they're now getting these pressure calls, which which they've never experienced, and they've they've now having to make decisions which in in the past they had decisions which would have dictated fourth or fifth whereas now they're actually losing races and and it's the same thing with the mercedes same thing red bull is that you kind of it's always highlighted when you lose a race it's never really fully highlighted if you lose fourth or fifth how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, I would like to follow up with a very specific example from Ferrari, from Silverstone, in fact. And that is how much does the driver race engineer relationship complicate your strategy? Because looked at um, from a purely numbers point of view, you put Leclerc in front of signs as soon as possible. I was amazed they didn't pit him out of the way. But what really interests me was the end of the race where signs said, well, no, you can take your strategy and I will ignore it because I think I've got a better Stop inventing. plan here. Stop inventing. Ugh. So what happens when your strategy argues with you? How much more difficult does that make your job? Um, it's... Yeah, I mean, you try and put yourself in a position where you're never in that position. And I mean, (laughs) I think even as a strategist, even if they kind of say, as soon as you put signs on brand new tyres in second place behind the car, and you you can't expect your driver to then not do anything with it. It's, it's, I mean, I think, and then this maybe comes in the experience bit where they've never been in a position where they're actually dictating these kind of situations. but. 
unless it's fully discussed beforehand and it's uh, it's kind of a an agreement and a kind of rules of engagement or something's been written up i i think it's it's a bit if it's i mean again i don't know the full conversations i don't know the full plans are, but it's a bit naive to, for them to have felt that if science was ever gonna not attack him when mm. if you're pitting on for brand new tires what's what's the point of pitting him for brand new tires you might as well kept him in second place on the hard tires and then held up group so if you've pitted him onto soft tires and then tell him not to attack it. That's just a confusing message to your driver, and your driver is quite right to say, I have no idea what you're doing here, so I'm, I'm going to do my own race. Yeah. Well, let me back out a bit then. Uh, we see that Signs is perfectly willing to argue his side of the argument. It seems much more than Leclerc. When you were developing strategy, when you're thinking about how to manage this, do you take those kinds of driver race engineer relationships into account when you make suggestions to the team? Um, yes and no. So, I mean, obviously these situations in the safety car is, is a very like on the, on the fly. Cause you, you, yeah. you can never probably um, plan exactly what the situation is. Like you can never go into a race knowing that, okay, I'm two seconds behind Leclerc with Verstappen, oh, sorry, Hamilton just behind me and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these tires are this age. Before the race, you can't have that discussion. So you don't exactly know what the situation is going to be in, in that respect. I think the, the the ones is the kind of plans pre-race, you'll kind of say, okay, if the car is this, this, we'll do this and we'll make yeah. offset your strategies in, in, in that respect. I think... Obviously, and again, the safety car ones the situations is there's not a time to have a conversation. So there's not a time to have discussed for the race engineer. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. It's a case of right safety cars coming mm-hmm. out. The decision, the, the the discussion possibly should have been had before then of saying right, this is what we're going to do. And and again, this is where I come back to my early points. Like I don't know, we don't know how much of this discussions were had pre safety yeah. car uh, for if there's a safety car coming out right. here. We're going to keep um, Charles out and we're going to box Carlos. We don't know how much that was done. Did they call it as soon as the safety car come out or had they already pre-planned that this was going to be the situation? And, and this is answer we don't particularly know. Um, and this might be where there's a bit of a, a back and forth. But uh, in, in all honesty, the race engineers during a race, they they don't have the capacity to kind of argue your strategy with you anyway. Oh, okay. um, they because they, yeah. they're, they're concentrating so much on the car they're concentrating on gaps concentrating on communicating to the driver they, they often don't know the, the whole race situation other than what you tell them so, so, so if um, you say the safety car comes down and you say we've got a pit they'll just go okay pit pit carlos yes they won't they basically just, yeah yeah okay yeah. That, that's or, really or, interesting or, or it's a case of you like you'll say to them for example all right we're in our safety car window now like pre-safety car and the race engineer then knows at that point, okay, yeah. I've been told them in my safety car window. If the safety car comes out, I on the radio straight away and say, Pit. Ah, I'll good. So it. when they say safety car window is open, they mean oh, it would be adv- advantageous for us to pit at this point if there's a safety car. Because obviously, Correct. yeah, in, in years gone by, you, you might go yeah, a dozen races without a safety car. Now they're far more on it, plus they know it's entertaining as well. That's got to be in the back of their heads. So... I, I'm assuming the strategists at nearly every point in every race are thinking, what would I do if there was a safety car now? Yes. So, yeah, what, so yeah. What, I yeah. mean, that. To, to be fair, like that's, especially in the, in the situations with your one-stop races, or if they are one-stops, I know we are heading a bit more towards your mm. two-stop, which is a good thing, but more on your one-stop races, once you've got that kind of first stop lap out of the way and you've, you've 
covered off your tire requirement, you've covered off any potential undercuts, etc. You may you just have to focus on okay, these these cars are doing an offset strategy, so we need to just do this kind of pace. But other than that, you're then just monitoring, yeah, basically lap on lap on lap. You're looking at gaps, you're looking at your tire conditions, you like you you basically, yeah, you're you're looking at right if there's a VSC, what do we do? If there's a safety go, what do we do? And it is yeah, constant from from that point forward. Obviously, with your two-stop races, you're more likely to be in a safety car window more often because the tyres are degrading more and mm. you've got another stop to make anyway. So that shut, that narrows that window, that, no, sorry, widens that window for the safety car anyway. So actually, for two stops, it actually makes it out a little bit easier. The ones which are always the most difficult are the ones that are like the Silverstone uh, ones that are you've completed all your stops and then it comes out 10 laps to the end. It's always the most difficult safety car call because it's that case of, you know, you're not going to have many racing laps after it comes in. The You're always potentially chucking away yeah, positions if positions, you don't yeah. know what other cars are going to do because there's, a, there's a, a bit of a spread on how the tyre ages of tyres are, what tyres other people are doing. So it's it's definitely the most difficult decision but, to make is that end of race safety car. At Silverstone, it's, that felt like a no-brainer to everyone that you needed to be uh, on on the softs, and there seemed to be no downside because if you came out, if you pitted on the the softs, and someone mm-hmm. else like Hamilton stayed on the hards, you, you know you're going to get him at Silverstone. Yeah. Like the the so, whole everyone, like millions of people around the world, were screaming at the TV. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, all right. If, if we want to discuss this, so like I looked looking into it, and you've got obviously three cars. You got Shell which had about a five-second gap to Sainz, which had yeah. a couple of seconds gap to, to Lewis. The only thing I can think of, and I was trying to go through it and try and understand what I thought the Ferrari call was going to be in that sense. And like, Lewis had only stopped five laps earlier, so his tyres were only five laps old, ah, but we had on hard yes. tyres, which okay. were going to go easily to the end of the race. They weren't that offset. However, and this is, so my only thought in that situation is that Ferrari thought Lewis isn't going to pit and we don't want to put both our cars behind lewis however then my my the thing which confuses me is they were still willing to put carlos behind him so they're actually removing a buffer from charles and then putting carlos behind lewis anyway so you're kind of thinking if lewis didn't pit, yeah um so you then kind of questioning why would you do that why what's the what's the motivation of of actually giving lewis a run on charles if they both don't pit because lewis ties are newer i mean i think there was only eight laps difference but they were newer and lewis had generally matching the pace of of the car um sorry that's my doorbell sorry <laughs> um it's um yeah and it goes back in the, into that sense of why why did they then feel it was fine for carlos yeah. I, again his tires are a little bit older so maybe they thought they wouldn't restart but that was the issue with the um with the hard tyres I think with Mercedes obviously they had a totally free pit stop so again that's another thing Ferrari should have looked at but Mercedes had a totally free pit stop so mm. they had no harm in in, in not pitting because yeah. if they had if they'd pit, not pitted and Ferrari had pit both the cars yeah. they Parts knew they would have been a sitting duck so and and then and that was it and uh, so yeah it was, it was a really strange one in that sense Matt yeah I, I had just wanted to briefly ask because that was such a high profile call and obviously the person who made it although not named and shamed in the media so to speak yeah that's got to be really just brutal 
when you're a strategist and something like that happens. Have you ever, has there ever been a call, and this is a listener question or bird pink, and has there ever been a call like that that you made that to this day, uh, you wake up in the middle of the night going, oh, why did I do that? It was uh, Bird Pinkerton. We have to have to say that. Very good uh, American <laughs> journalist. Friend of, friend of the show, we hope. Uh, yeah, 100%. Um, and it's yeah, the nemesis of Monaco. And so that was with Kevin in 2019. Yeah. So we were obviously really good qualifying running. I think he was fifth in qualifying. Um, yeah. And we were in the race and we were stuck behind Daniel Ricciardo in that first in. And it was a, I mean, Ricardo was managing and managing, as in, I think the safety car came out on lap nine, nine or 10 or something. And by that point, the top four cars had already got 20 seconds down the road and we were stuck behind Daniel Ricardo. And obviously with Monaco, track position's key. So you kind of think, okay, right. If we, if we don't pit and everyone else pits, we're going to struggle here. However, the vice, so, but so, we made the call to pit Kevin on that one. Daniel Ricciardo pitted at the same time when we came out behind him anyway. So we didn't gain a position there. But the worst thing is we obviously lost position. Basically, no one behind us, directly behind us, didn't stop. And we also came out behind some cars, which had started on that. So I think we'd started on the on the, the, the soft tyre on that one. And we came out behind some cars, which were on the medium. So we knew, obviously, they were already going long. So again, that was the first mistake I made. Should have looked at where we're going to come out and we we're going to come out behind cars who were going to go along on that first in, mm. which was a mistake. Because obviously... Slower slower cars, presumably, as well, down the... Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, slower cars on a track which you can't overtake regardless. Um, so that was a mistake. And then the next thing that played into it was that uh, Lando um, then played the ultimate teammate card and drove slowly and held up a gap to allow, I think it must have been Carlos at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, to, to pull out and get a free pit stop, which then basically, where we'd fallen out in this, meant we got caught behind this, but we allowed some cars to pull out in front. And then, yeah, and, and I think we ended up finishing 14th. And oh. yeah, I mean, and, and like, I'm really, like, me and Kevin get on really well. It's like, <laughs> we, we, we still get on really well, still talk quite a lot. Um, but yeah, he came up to me after, and I felt I, I was all, I was gutted. Oh. I, I was gutted at the time. I knew it was wrong, and and Kevin, fair, fair play to him, came up afterwards and went, "That was a strategy, wasn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, and it was, and and it still haunts me to this day. So that's that's the worst one because I think yeah, we finished fourteenth, which have, with a car which was very much capable of finishing on merit fifth, and. I can't remember exactly what happened, but there was a potential even a couple of cars dropped out, which meant there would have been a chance of a podium for that one, which would have been a fantastic yeah, result. I don't want to make it uh, even worse, but like obviously the position the team was in then, like that would have that would have changed the whole mood of the team and the camp of like that evening from like disappointment yeah. to like a full on celebration. And then yeah, you're sitting yeah, there exactly, just going, yeah. oh. and, and and the thing about it as well is the worst thing is the strategist is that everyone knows it's your call. Um, and the, you're like, there's nothing more you can do and say, yeah, I've, I've messed up there. It's, um, hands up. It's, yeah, it's like, a, a, and, you, and you feel awful because you have let down, you've let down the drive. It's not just the driver. You've got guys who've worked on the car for four days straight and they're putting hours and yeah, the chance of getting good points if you're not a podium and you, you've let them down and it, it's, yeah. it's an awful feeling. So I have, I have, full sympathy for the Ferrari guy because you never do anything deliberately. You never no. think he obviously had a reason for doing 
or the team had a reason for doing what they're doing. And then, I mean, granted, they still won, the team still won the race for Gar, so it balances out a little bit, but you will have one unhappy side of the garage slash driver. And and the worst thing is as well is that, like, and this is a good thing about me and Kevin, is like he never lost trust in me just because of that yeah. one mistake. I explained it all to him. I explained what the decisions was and we moved on. You just, you don't want to ever be in that position where you you lose the trust of the driver either because if that happens then you you are in trouble i'm so glad you you've shared that and thank you for sharing that because i could see the the pain etched on your face (laughs) as you were talking about it but you know we know when the driver's been it like lewis hamilton has felt really bad in the the qualifying he's like so sorry to everyone who's put effort in thanks for fixing the car but you know uh, for example i think it was at haas as well when uh, grosjean's tire didn't go on from a very good position in the season opener in 20 yeah, something, Australia, something. 2018. Oh, you, were you were there? Were you there? Yeah. Oh, you were there. And then the pictures of yep. uh, Roman Grosjean going and like hugging the pit guy yeah, yeah, and yeah. how devastated he must be. Like, we don't really think enough about how when it goes wrong and not a driver's side, the emotions that go on in, in the in the team. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it swings around the bar. So it's like, yeah, it's, but it's, it's always the case of, I mean, Again, I put it on the on the on the counter counter point of view. It's like we I can't remember what race it was, but it's, I'm I'm not going to go into too much specifics because I don't want to I don't want to stand. But like you have two drivers who are kind of potentially going to take each other out, oh. and they take each other out, and then in the race, and you sat there and you've gone, I've worked eighteen hours days for the last four days, and you've just <laughs> taken each other out on lap one. Yeah. So like, and and at that point. You don't know, like, obviously they feel bad, but then they're more angry. They're like, I'm not sure if they have the same kind of, (laughs) same kind of remorse for someone like myself would do. I don't don't know. I don't know. There's not not enough tapas in Barcelona to to (laughs) quash those emotions, is there? (laughs) (laughs) To make you feel better. (laughs) <laughs> final final question mike we really do appreciate your time this has actually just come fresh in on on twitter uh tom graham says mike how many times was your strategic advice ignored he says by a sociopath chief engineer uh, only then for you to be proved correct and, and i think there was a good question here from uh, i can't remember who it's from but if a driver just decides to take the strategy into his own hands by either not pitting or or just coming in and pitting? Um, I mean... Oh, that's Blen Orangey. Thank you for that question. Look, luckily enough, I think most drivers are knowledgeable enough not to do that. Okay. Um, so, like, it's... I mean, because if they just came in, you obviously, you, you're going to end <laughs> yeah. up in an empty box and you're going to lose a lot yeah. of time and it's going to be a disaster for you. I mean, the the ones you can maybe look at, you're calling for someone to pit and they're like, oh, no, I'm staying out, I'm staying out. But again, you need to kind of, it's it's the, they don't have all the information. And I think the enough drivers knows, um, enough drivers know that they don't have the full race picture. They can like, they maybe something seems a bit strange to them, but hopefully they have the understanding and trust that what are you doing? What what you're doing is is correct in, in terms of, why I'm calling you in, and we even though it seems a bit strange to them, you often hear Lewis at times going, "These ties are really good. I want to go along, etc." And the team's like, "Yeah, we understand that, but 
we've got all the numbers, we're doing all the simulations, we're looking at the gaps closing. If we leave you much longer, you're going to have to go through four cars of traffic. So even if you, you're offset at the end of the race, you potentially yeah. use up that tyre offset trying to overtake these cars. Well, so the Austria, Austria was a good example, wasn't it? Because looking at the timing screens, he did look to be on pace. And you think, oh, may as well just leave him out. Just leave him out forever. He's looking, he's looking like he's on pace. But I suppose the strategists are seeing uh, maybe a potential tyre drop-off and then looking at gaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. So they're looking at lap times, and they and and also it's a case of what well, he might be looking at consistent lap times, but actually what you're seeing and what I think Austria showed was that because I think it rained heavily overnight Saturday Sunday, but the track was actually quite green at the start of the race. So while the degradation wasn't high so much, every time someone went onto a new set of tyres, there was a significant lap mm. time improvement. So actually the degradation was fairly high in the tyres. It was kind of masked by the track improving. So Lewis is sat around going, my lap oh. times are remaining consistent, but actually it's the track improving. That's... Whereas then someone sticks a brand new set of tyres on, they're then going one and a half seconds quicker. And that's yeah, the thing, so... the driver would not necessarily feel that difference because the grip level well, exactly, stays the cause same. Exactly, because it's, it's balancing out. He's getting the... He's feeling the track grip increase, which mm. thinks the tyres are still good, whereas the tyres are actually dropping <laughs> off. And you only actually see it when new people put on new tyres and actually go, oh, look uh. how much quicker they are now <laughs> they've got their new sets on. Okay, so actually the track evolution is um, has balanced out your tyre degradation there. Oh, a quick is, Yeah, and, and that's the kind of comments where, where a driver might go, the tyres feel good. And he's like, yes, but they're not as good as a brand new set. So I, I know you've got a queue of people waiting at your door, but... I. <laughs> and, and I know I noticed you sidestepped the the question about uh, the sociopath chief engineer who might have ignored you at, at certain points. We're going to assume that engineers always always listen to the strategist. Um, but finally, just to pick at that thread, when you talk about track evolution, we see it so much in uh, in qualifying and especially in, in changeable conditions where you're getting a drying line. How hard is it to track uh, track evolution? And is that your job as the strategist? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's. It's not an exact science because, I mean, track evolution actually lumps in a lot of things in my my kind of experience. But obviously, the track as rubber goes down, it naturally mm. increases the grip. But you also got to kind of balance off the tire going off to how lap times going. So it's it's that kind of degradation slash track improvement. But then we try and map it throughout the whole weekend. But at the same time say p1 example and you say the track's getting a lot better well actually what you find is the drivers go out to do the first laps they're nowhere near the limit they'll be like knowing it's p1 i'm gonna get my user i'll see what the track's like and i'll gradually build up to it so you actually see what people are calling track improving it's not it's just the drivers gradually mm-hmm. like building it up to it and the same in qualifying to a certain extent as well but you'll find you'll have your top guys like your verstappen's and Claire, so they're not going to go flat out in q1 because by the end of Q3, they will be on that final lap. They're fully on the limit, but they can't. They, they know they've got the car to get through to Q3 easily, so they're not yeah. going to risk spinning off or crashing the car on in Q1. So they'll just rein it back a little bit. So that's where you also see their kind of improvements throughout. Um, can you can you tell? Yeah, it, can you tell if a driver's just ninety five percent? Not really. No. no. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. Yeah, difficult for the trained eye, but you, you kind of know that they're, they're not. You know the guys who are kind of, if you watch the onboards, if they're kind of properly fighting the car, that's that's when they're on the limit. <laughs> so, but uh, it's it's um if if they look fairly steady and they're just kind of building up to it, and that's also sometimes where you see the top teams in Q one. I mean, always in quality one is that um, 
your your fastest approach will be one time lap, maybe two times up. So fast, so fast. And you'll see some of the big teams go out and do a, like a five, six, seven lap run. And that's again because they're not driving up full day, and they're, they're gradually just eking it out and mm. and the match here. So that's another that's an indication, but they're not driving to the limit because if they're driving to the limit, the tires would be finished after that first lap, and and you wouldn't be able to keep on improving your lap times throughout the session. So from from this conversation, I'm gleaning. The, there's probably more to being an F1 strategist than we can quite comprehend from our sofas, but it's not going to stop us trying uh, to be the best armchair strategists we can. But hopefully you speaking to us, and, and if you'll speak to us more often, will help us be the best armchair strategists we possibly can. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a fascinating thing. And uh, I, like, I, I like, I like, I enjoy talking about it. And I enjoy like, letting people know about the ins and outs of it. So yeah, definitely. Go and follow Mike Caulfield, uh, F1, on Twitter. Some interesting stuff from you on there. I'll spell your name because you, you spell it funny. You spell it wrong. C-A-U-L, Field. C-A-U-Field. So Mike Caulfield, F1. Thank you for your time and uh, and uh, and thanks for joining us. And, and tell us where to get your secret data sources from uh, at some time, won't you? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> sounds, sounds like a no. Cheers, Mike. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. recording right these are going to be bully basic questions 20 minutes <clears throat> let's roll an amazing insight to f1 strategy and uh, very very generous of him to share a failure it's it's often much easier to talk about your victories and although it might be fun for other people it can be quite traumatic to live through those times where you know ah, i should have done better but that's how we learn eh and don't worry i, I make plenty of mistakes on this podcast so i, I definitely know about learning from mistakes but someone who i learn about racing from is mr bradley philpot who joins me on the stream in the shed now hey brad good afternoon spanners tell me about your through the visor thing our patrons will have heard your your latest content creation but it's been going fantastically well and i'm jealous tell us about it yeah so uh, a little while ago i decided to try and try and make my own make my own content about the driving side of formula one because obviously when whenever i appear on on miss apex you can't just blab about the specific topic you want to talk about for half an hour or 15 minutes at a time. So Matt does, he doesn't care. That is true. I, I thought I'd um, make my own yeah. my own little series where I could go into a bit more detail. And the way we've formatted it is essentially after every Grand Prix, um, I take some questions from Twitter and then answer the ones that, that I feel I can, I can do the most justice. The things people ask me all sorts of questions about the technical side, which obviously isn't my, yeah. isn't really my expertise. So I try and answer the ones that directly relate to the driver's experience, what the driver's going through and, and why they may have chosen to do a certain thing. Um, and what it's yeah. like from the cockpit. No, no, I love that because it's exploring kind of a core element of our, our sport, the rules, how they're adhered to. And, and it's, it's, it's strange that it's not, something that's actually dug into by a lot of content creators which is why we have the whose fault is it segment where instead of going oh it's a racing incident we really kind of borrow down into what is it under the letter of the law what is it under the spirit of racing um and as a as a fairly experienced racing driver yourself when you're in a series you know how aware are you of the very specific rules of that series when you get to a wheel-to-wheel bit of action so generally you don't need to be because generally the rules are they they're kind of understood there's almost there's un unsaid and unwritten yeah. driver conduct rules that you just get used to 
And then around the fringes of those things, if we're talking about racing battles and what you're allowed to do in different situations, around the edges and the more extreme cases, then yes, you could probably get into more um, more detail about who was technically at fault for an incident. But in my own driving experience, you just never have an incident. You cannot afford to have an incident. So yeah. in, in my entire race career, I can't think of a single time outside of karting where I've actually made contact with another car and hadn't had an accident. You just can't do that. Okay, so well, we so, see- sorry to do this to you, but I can think of a time. Uh, weren't you in a multi-class series and you ended up having a Porsche uh, chop over the side of you and you went off track on the inside and ended up hitting the Porsche? Yeah, so even that example, so that's really that's the one thing that we can <laughs> we can point to. That that was on an outlap in practice. So oh, was that's it? that's like leaving the pits in a practice session. Oh. So that's, that wasn't a racing incident. I wasn't racing against that car. That was purely a misunderstanding with that car not realizing I was exiting the pits. And and I think I've spoken about this before, but also my team fitting tires which they hadn't told me that hadn't been warmed up and basically sending me out on cold hard tires without letting me know that. As far as I was concerned, I was still on the hot um, warmed up tires that I'd just come into the pits on and thought I had a lot more grip. <laughs> yeah, even that situation, um, that's that's a real rarity. So what we see in Formula One, where there's lots of incidents for us to dig into and lots of things for us to try and pin down to whether or not someone did something against the rules or which driver was at fault in a battle where it went wrong, it, it's not that it's not as common to have these kind of incidents in other series where people are having to pay for their own yeah accident damage or, or find the money from somewhere else yeah i'm almost like I, I i feel bad because i know i know what a talented racer you are i feel bad that you've kind of had to drive in a way where you've really had to protect your car because i guess like you, you have to put money up don't you in a lot of those series and if you have an accident you you lose that money yeah essentially you i mean i i never really had the money to put down on <laughs> the deposits, the teams like you to put down a damage deposit, which you then get back at the end. But my, my sponsorship tended to, to stretch just about to the drive itself. And we worry about the accident damage later. And unfortunately I I even had, uh, I had um, my, my friend put down a credit card deposit on his own credit card at one point, 15,000 euros. So I could race in a a six hour race in a Porsche Cayman at the Nürburgring. And it wasn't until I got back in the pits, finished my stint and got out of the car that I could finally relax because at any moment yeah. up and up until then, even if it's out of your hands, if the if the car yeah. fails and you go in the barrier, you're still responsible for for the um the accident damage uh, unless you can prove beyond any any doubt that it was definitely just a failure. So so, so um, if you're gonna have any series and racetrack where you uh if any crash you have costs your friend money they don't have but they've put a credit down for, I mean the Nordschleifer seems like a really sensible track to do that on. And, and yeah, you know, <laughs> funnily enough though, actually the drivers tend to be quite respectful because people know that but i've, I've been in plenty yeah. of situations against gt3 cars who are quite often factory back drivers who are not paying for their own damage yeah. and are in effectively a four or six hour sprint race as far as they're concerned who don't treat you as nicely and then it basically falls on to you to give them even more room and make sure you definitely <laughs> are being very predictable when you're allowing wow. them to lap you and that kind of thing how far down does this issue go and is it is it also an issue on the ladder to formula one do you think there's some drivers who can just drive with abandon and others who are like oh this is my this is my only ticket to the chocolate factory competition yeah absolutely it goes it goes all the way down to karting you know Mm. if you can't afford a 150 pound or 200 pounds for a new set of nose cone and side pods in a in a car i mean 
in in full-on racing carts the pods are a lot more fragile than what you or i are more used to on a in rental yeah recent times in a rental cart where you can knock into someone and then and carry on and then the carts crash into each other all day long in a in a full-on <laughs> racing cart you bump into someone significantly and you're buying new pods and new stickers and a whole new set could be hundreds and hundreds of pounds which isn't a lot in the in the grand scheme of the rest of your racing career if you carry on into single seaters but it's still lots of money and that yeah a lot of drivers the majority probably are having to drive with that in mind and so and this is why these these who's whose fault is it situations that that you cover on missed apex and and the mm. kind of things I'm covering on my youtube series they are for a lot of drivers not an option that you you cannot stay up someone's inside as they're turning towards you because you can't afford to fix it and again you can't turn in on someone hoping they move out of the way because if they don't that's your season over that must be a real psychological advantage when you get to like you know junior high level karting that must really affect some battles yeah i mean and this is why this is why it's difficult to look upon the the billionaire contingent that make yeah. it to the top level of motorsport and and fully uh, respect their journey as much as you would someone who yeah. didn't have that um so uh, yeah i mean and it's not just that it's mm. it, we can go in, you can go into the amount of opportunity they have outside in terms of the number of races they can enter and yeah. the amount of practice they get but just in pure terms of the the caution that they need to take into racing situations it's completely different it's not equal just because you're in the same series probably mm. in the same kind of car as everyone else it doesn't mean your mindset can be the same as someone can, who can afford the damage. So in previous seasons, that might have also been the case in F1 between teams with different budgets. and But with the cost cap, I guess like, even the top teams will really feel it now when you start getting accident damage. Yeah, and I think even just this weekend at Austria, we saw in the sprint race, Hamilton driving with quite a lot of caution. You covered it on the podcast last mm. week and and I was criticizing Hamilton as well for not being yes. aggressive enough in the sprint race. I, I'd still stand by that and say that the moves that I was um, advocating him going for were very low risk. It wasn't like I was, I was thinking, oh, why isn't he just sending it recklessly yeah. up the inside? I was still thinking there's a pretty easy controlled outbreaking move on here. Um, but anyway, regardless, they've said publicly, Mercedes, that if they had much more damage, they had the real prospect of not being able to race the following day. So, so yeah, it is something that the teams need to need to pay attention to now. Ah, that was a nice little um, diversion. I'm always interested in what it's like for for non-funded drivers. We we could definitely we could one day we'll, we'll we'll come back. We'll do a deep dive in your attempt to do the impossible, which is try to be a racing driver with like normal people's money. Which in in the end is you know probably like just slamming your head into a brick wall for 35 years. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but I wanted to ask you what might seem like a, a dumb question, um, but we'll see what we get out of it. So obviously you've driven everything from single-seaters to, to GT sports cars, done a lot of karting and done a, a lot of sim racing. I've done, I've done less racing than that, Brad. It might surprise you to learn. But I, I am getting into my karting now because we do a lot of Missed Apex uh, events, and it's always with, with rental carts relatively low power but we do kind of enter into this competition spirit throughout the day and uh, my wife called it race car karaoke so we all get to kind of pretend to be race drivers for the afternoon and and then of course we do a lot of sim racing as well we have relatively good rigs at home so my my stupid question to you is is it harder to drive a race car than a go-kart so uh we'd need to just clarify we're talking about uh, like the accessible everyday go, carts yeah, that anyone exactly. can pay and go what, and drive what i'm experiencing at missed apex events 
Yeah. And also I probably need to clarify what we mean by race car, because race car could range from everything from the kind of car you sampled at Silverstone with Alex Van Jean, which was a, was it a Peugeot 206 yeah, cup yeah. car? Yeah. Um, in like a, a club level, I'm sure, I'm sure no one will mind me saying like the kind of entry level, yeah. no, club no, no. level you, front you're, wheel drive You're not race insulting car. them. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and that is, that is a race car. Um, yeah. And, and I was actually out in, at Silverstone yesterday in something very similar, um, doing some coaching, um, like a Golf GTI. Yeah. Um, and or race car could stretch all the way up to, you know, high-powered single-seater or GT3 car style thing. And, and there is a really big difference. And that's why I, that's why I try and make this distinction. Okay. So the, the things, maybe let's look at what's similar, first of all. Sim racing uh, that you and the Mist Apex crew do and rental cart slash Mist Apex race events are a really, really good window into what the racing side of driving a race car is like. So in terms of positioning, yes. um, the, the the heat of battle, apart from the damage not yeah. being a worry, if we if we rule that out, the the actual physics and mechanics of the racing side the race and the sporting side and yeah. the race craft, that's actually really pretty close. Where it starts to get further and further diverged from what I've experienced in in race cars is the brutality of all the forces that are happening to you. It's very easy when, and I'm guilty of this as well. It's very easy when you do a significant amount of rental karting and sim and sim racing to forget just how loud, brutal, hot, scary, uh, a fast race car is. Right. And that's, that's probably the biggest difference um, when you go out in, when I was, when I was doing some sim racing and then at the weekend going off to race at the Nürburgring, the thing that would always hit me immediately and you get used to it, yeah. you become accustomed to it, especially the more experienced you are, but it's just how, how it's so important for you to not get anything wrong because you've suddenly got yeah. the risk of physical injury, financial penalty, the weekend being over. If on iRacing or at a rental car race, we make a mistake, it, we still get to carry on. You know, you make a mistake, even if you were to make a massive mistake and have a crash into a wall, which is yeah. something you would, which would be major. Yeah. A, in mar- a, race a marshal car. can pull you out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a marshal can pull you yeah. out, or you can hit reset yeah. and start again. Yeah. Obviously, bear in mind that in, a, in an iRacing race, you can't just crash. But yeah, um, but there's no, there's nothing stopping you from just carrying on and, and doing another one. But in a race car, there really is. So you you have to be very mindful of that, and and everything. There's much more of an assault on your senses, and I'd say G forces. The faster the car is, obviously, the more grip you've got, mm. the more physicality starts to become a limiting factor. So just, just as a couple of examples, when I was testing F3 cars, um, I would, despite being an instructor at the time and always being out in race cars and being pretty reasonably fit and mm. having a quite a strong neck, I was getting to the point where I couldn't manage more than maybe 10 laps at a time. Oh, really? Having to come in because my neck just could not handle it. And this is a Formula 3 car from a few years ago, nowhere near a Formula 2 or Formula 1 car of, of modern times. So that's that's from someone who's pretty race fit anyway. Yeah. And I wouldn't I wouldn't feel that at all in a rental car. So, so you'd have to go and do specific training to load, yeah. do like a series in F3. Yeah, or mm. do more of the yeah. F3 racing or testing or whatever and naturally build up that that strength. Um, and even in karting, last year I was—I've mentioned this a couple of times. My sponsor M4M was really nice, nice. In that they, although they couldn't afford to pay for me to do any major car racing last year. They paid for me to do some very expensive karting, and I'd never experienced such crazy forces on my body to the point where, as you know, I broke my ribs twice just from the G-force, yeah. despite wearing an expensive <laughs> rib protector. And again, yeah. 
that was just as brutal, if not more brutal than the Formula 3 um, testing. And and that's a cart. So it shows you kind of the difference between what we generally get to race, yeah. the more accessible, doesn't cost you five grand a weekend kind of karting. And then the kind of level that the drivers on the Formula 1 ladder are are going through. Oh, I see. Uh, so on the on the rental cars, okay. So for for me, I'm, I'm I'm reasonably fit. I have upper body strength, but it's it's a good pump for me on those those rental cars. And by the end of the afternoon, after four races, I'm I'm like, Phew. yeah. If someone said you can do that again for free tomorrow, I'd probably go, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll leave it a couple of weeks. Uh, do you think that if I was to go up to the sort of rental carts, uh, the sort of carts you had paid or been paid to go and race, would I? find that a big shock because even on our rental carts there are some people who will drop out after three races and go ah, do you know what? I've, I've had a nice day i'm gonna save my body put it this way um uh, this will be something very uh, this isn't something you will have um, experienced in a rental car i imagine mm. i was getting to the point where i would go out and after three or four laps i could not keep my head upright and, and wow. i'm talking acceleration out of the corners my head was trying to fall backwards off my neck and <laughs> and laterally um, and I was having to cut my practice sessions short because I just couldn't, you're losing two or three seconds a lap because you can't look where you're going. Oh that, my that's goodness. the kind of, that's the kind of brutality. So yeah, I, I would actually, and I know you're quite a fit guy. I would, I don't reckon you'd last one race without having to go five, 10 seconds slower than you wanted to go. Just, because just it's to physically, preserve, yeah. physically that hard. So and that's be. why there's a massive advantage to having the opportunity to do it more often and do a lot of testing oh. just to physically prepare yourself for it. So I think like um, we, we, we can appreciate that in an F1, when they parachute in someone like Paul DeResta or Nico Hülkenberg, unless they've been just keeping up their full F1 training, and, and why would you if you're a pundit mostly? Um, it's actually a much harder ask than we perhaps realise. And Magnussen coming back saying, yeah, I'm not quite strong enough for these cars. Yeah, and I think Magnussen even specifically mm. mentioned his neck being a bit of a problem at the, the first race he was mm. back because there really is no substitute to being race fit. And this is a guy that's been racing prototypes and IndyCar and all sorts of other stuff, which also require you to have extremely yeah. um, good neck muscles. Um, yeah. So, well, this is a big ask, but let's let's forgive me the fitness, okay? Let's say that I can get up to the fitness to drive a a race car. So, like, maybe something like a, a GT3 or um, or... Uh, what you were a class champion of at the Nordschleife, which was a, a Peugeot factory car? It's a TCR car, yeah, oh, so like okay. a, a touring car. Or right. a BTCC would be analogous. Oh, okay. So so let's say we put me into there, but we, we give me the physicality. I finally, you know, I, I lose that £10 um, and I get a little stronger. Um, and we can take away the, the financial side of it. But I'm in a race. Okay, so having experienced a bit of a race competition experience at, at karting level and actually you know I, I was reasonably on pace in this last one i was able to race the likes of, of kyle and yourself and kind of see you on the same bit of track how do i how would i adapt uh, what would be what would shock me about entering that kind of field for a competitive race i think it would shock you how fast people were um initially because mm. there would there would be because you don't have a lot of experience uh, probably basically no experience yes. in a race car competition no matter how good your potential is, you know, no, no matter how good you could be given more practice, everyone you're up against has done a, a lot more practice and will be way less afraid of the car than you. And I don't mean, yeah. when I no, say no, afraid, no. I just mean, I mean, they'll be more confident to lean on it and know yeah. where they can get away with leaning on it. Um, and you would, you would find it initially a big shock, just how far off the pace you were saying nothing about your actual skill. You, you just need to become acclimatized to, 
the speed <laughs> and, and how fast a real race car is. And as a proper um, driver, have you found that dropping into a series or, or a field of drivers and gone, oh, poof, that's going to take some catching up? When I when I did my first BTCC test at Donington, um, I was uh, the person. The data I was being compared to was Jason mm. Plato because he was the regular driver in the car I was in, and and I thought I was breaking really late. You know, I thought I was yeah. pretty much on the limit of what I could get away with. And despite you know the data was from a different day, different conditions, different tires, whatever, any excuse you can come up with. But the fact <laughs> was, there was clearly more margin in the braking areas how, how than much? I, how when I was giving the car credit. You know, ten meters or so oh, okay. to begin with. So it's. And that's that's me, and I'm I'm going in. I would have jumped into that start a much higher starting point than a normal sure. person who hasn't had years of experience than driving me, you can similar just say, cars. You can say a higher starting point than the the likes of us mugs. That's fine. And, and it's not even just it's not even just that. It's not even just the driving the car as well as it can be driven. The more experienced you are, and the more you've done in the past, the more you just know how you want things like your seat position sure. and yeah. how far away from the buttons. Uh, you are and and all that kind of thing you just get in and you you make sure that's all right first of all you don't waste your time ergonomics um, yeah yeah exactly all the ergonomics of being in a race car you just get it right first time you're very clear in in what you're asking your mechanic to do to get the pedals exactly where your feet need them to be things like that i'm very particular yeah. on my sim about these things as well um but i think the main yeah. thing you would experience the main and, I, and i'm this is why i'm desperate to get you in a race car spanners i know i've mentioned a few times trying to get you around mm. the nordschleifer in anything <laughs> And I mean, even yeah. a road car, I think, would have a similar effect um, on you, a quick enough road car, you know, some kind of yeah. hot hatch. I want you to feel what it's like to be in in a car, not a rental car or or the Peugeot 206 you drove. I think it was wet when you drove that as it well. It was wet. So, yes, we didn't. Yeah, there wasn't. There was no grip. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so apex speeds yeah. and, you know, end Very of straight speeds yeah. and stuff are just much, much lower. I really want you to feel and experience the brutality of it. We, we've got to, at some point, get you out, it, whether it's going to Palmer Sport or something like that. We need to get you out on track. Oh, Brad, I, I am a, I'm an old man. I, I'm 41 and I, I just don't feel that urge to to take those kind of risks. And I, I, I do feel that fear. That's why ultimately I would never be a race car driver because even like the first few laps out in a rental car, I, I have a little moment of, blimey, blimey, these are a bit quick. Oh, blimey, you have, to go, you have to go quite close to that barrier. So I, I'm not sure I'm your prime candidate for that. But yeah, I'm, I think the average person just has no idea of that sensation so whilst i see the spirit of what you're talking about i don't really want to i i'm keen for you to <laughs> at the very least experience it as a passenger even in like a low risk scenario oh, okay. Main, mainly because of the kind of noises and the kind of sensations that you don't realize the drivers are going uh, through when you're watching on tv maybe there's certain yeah there's certain sounds and certain g-forces in certain directions and sensations that the car gives you that you just don't experience unless you've actually experienced it that the tv can't um, can't really get it across to you <laughs> maybe somewhere with a lot of runoff brad well silverstone for yeah. example I, I was at silverstone yesterday and as i said we were in kind of track prepared golf gtis on semi-slick tires so we're not talking about anything mm. particularly exotic and we're talking about a really big wide f1 track and i was i was actually kind of it's been a while since i've been out on silverstone and i was impressed with how good they felt so it doesn't even need to be anything particularly amazing those even those pretty standard cars mm -hmm. felt like they were quite at home going around silverstone and it gave a good impression of of what a, a lowish level race car would feel like and you've got lots of margin at silverstone so let's we've got to work <laughs> out a track there at some point and, and i'd advise as you do um to all the listeners i'd advise anyone yes. who has the opportunity to turn a wheel 
even if it is rental car or sim racing, do it because it gives you a, a definitely a big part of the of the kind of insight into what being a driver is like. There's just some elements that you can't replicate. I'm really heartened by the fact that you say the competition element of it and that that wheel to wheel is you're getting some benefit out of that and experiencing some of that. Because when we talk about like defending something you've worked on me with my racecraft is positioning and how, you know, for example, on a left, right corner, you don't have to immediately go back to the racing line if you don't want to. If you've got a car that was on your outside for the first corner, you can just hold your line and make it really difficult for them to go into the next corner. And it's just like little things like positioning. Now that I understand that, I watch F1 through different eyes and and I look at their positioning and I can be a bit more judgmental and a bit more of an armchair coach. Yeah, so it's exactly that. Yeah. The, the, um, the way that that transfers through the different categories is pretty clear. You know, yeah. the... The way to defend and the way to attack um, is pretty similar across the board. So I actually wonder how people who have never done that kind of thing, you know, never even maybe played a race game yeah. um, that's that's moderately realistic. I wonder what they're seeing because it must be a very different viewing experience. For example, seeing Verstappen defend against Leclerc at turn three at last weekend yeah. um, and and watching it as people who are a bit more experienced, you can see where his car is going to end up on the exit. It's almost like you're, you've got some kind of predictive vision. You can, you can see slightly into the future because you know, based on the speed he's going and the line he's taking now, he's going to naturally end up on this other trajectory on the exit. And the car that's attacking him is going to end up on wherever, you know, you can kind of see what's about to happen. And people who haven't had that experience, haven't done a a cut back on a go-kart on a indoor (laughs) track or whatever. Yeah. Wouldn't necessarily have that same experience. So so yeah. So definitely like I've only started doing this kind of stuff since meeting you guys. So really only in the last few years, have we taken the karting a little bit more seriously? And then of course the sim racing. And and to me, I get that same competition feeling from sim racing as I do from karting. I I know people like to kind of poo-poo it, but it's definitely changed how I look at stuff, even down to, uh, when you've got a car dive bombing down the inside of even like a hairpin and when you're the car doing the dive bomb, you know, that decision of like, will I make it? Will I not? And when you're the outside car defending is, is the, do I go for the apex or do I have to uh, account for a car that's about to suddenly appear here? Those kind of basic dynamics from a game or from karting, uh, it really changes your view on, on watching it on telly. Yeah. And, and I'm really glad that you're at that point now. And actually, without wanting to, to blow too much smoke, you're, you're at a much, <laughs> much higher level than you were when I first Hooray. met you. Yeah. Even though you probably would have judged yourself to be a, a, a half-decent rental carter back in the day. Yeah, so, stag do hero. I was a stag do hero. Like, so I, would, you, I would win all stag do's and cart things. And then when I started racing with you guys, I suddenly realised, oh, no, I'm miles off. So really, the one thing you are missing, as we've, as we've mm. touched upon before, the thing that you're missing when you, in terms of your viewing experience that, that I'm... I'm kind of imbuing my uh, my watching of the race with yeah. I'm kind of subconsciously always aware of this is the the brutality the noises the smells yeah. um the heat the danger side of things that you you haven't had that actual experience of no um, you've had the jeopardy in the sim racing you know it's very easy to damage the vehicle so you you it's not like you've only ever driven a rental car and if you turn in on someone you don't have this awareness of the the impact of the damage but it's just, it's all the the reality of it, like the realness of something could actually hit me in the head 
Um, yeah. I could actually break my arm if I hit the barrier at the wrong angle here. And you're That's just true. acutely aware of that. So what if I take my experiences of uh, being deployed in, in helicopters where I was convinced that every single noise was about to kill me and that there's no physical way that this thing could physically fly because it's clearly impossible and witchcraft. If I take that feeling and apply it to, to my racing incidents, will I get more of an idea of what's going on? That's actually probably pretty closely <laughs> analogous, the being inside a military helicopter with yeah, all the noises. It's and awful. <laughs> there, there's some real um, similarities there to being in a single-seater, where I bet, I bet. Like, it, the sounds just seem to kind of resonate around you. And you it could be something which sounds. is entirely... Yeah. Exactly. Something yeah. could be completely innocuous, but it also could be a tyre about to fail. It could be something something that's, you know, your brakes are maybe working loose. There's so many things that could be wrong, and and I guess you learn to tune them out the longer that you're um, the, the more driving you've done. Just to give an example, yeah. At the Nurburgring, if anything goes wrong with your car at the Nurburgring, if you're in anything that's remotely fast, you're almost certainly going into the barriers because by the time you've managed to even collect the car up, you're already at the edge of the track and it's very narrow and there's a wall right there. And you, I would quite often hear because there's no sound deadening in a race car. You know, there's. It's not even that it's been stripped out. It never even had an interior when it rolled out of the factory. You hear stones and pieces of rubber on the bottom of the car, and they they sound oh, very, very loud, yeah. especially if you've got an intercom in. You know, I've got kind of earplugs, but also a microphone. So certain sounds are amplified through your headphones. And I would hear pieces of gravel and rubber hit the bottom of the car, and you learn to tune that out. But one time I heard this, and it it wasn't going away. And then suddenly I had a giant moment of oversteer nearly went in the yeah. barrier but managed to avoid it and continue and, it, and the noise immediately stopped and what it turned out it was was actually lots of pickup lots of pieces of rubber had become lodged in the wheel arch oh. and it was it was the it was this lump of rubber like a kind of handful <laughs> beginning to kind of catch on one of the rear tires and eventually drop out of the wheel arch stick to the tire briefly for one or two rotations effectively like running over a, a kind of so you get like marble. a moment of lock almost a, a, just a sudden yeah. moment where the one of the rear tires is off the floor momentarily <laughs> so you've kind of gone over an artificial bump and Jeez. then it was gone but i would have never been able to tell you what that noise was <laughs> until that happened because it had never happened to me before but yeah. i'm sure i'd recognize the signs next time there's not a lot you can do about it because it might never fall down you can't just drive around slowly until it happens but so like yeah, you, interesting when you hear like you know verstappen talking of when he had the bit of the alpha towery you know stuck in his stuck in his floor and he's sitting there kind of trying to describe to everybody what's happening yeah and i think i mentioned this in in one of my um recent videos that it it will have felt probably like a puncture to him initially because essentially what he's feeling is a, a lack of grip on one of the corners of the car one area of the car is not responding like normal and initially, say you're getting a load of oversteer all of a sudden, that could well be a puncture. Most of the time, that sensation is probably a puncture. And then he'll mm. have been working out, okay, well, it's, there's not as much body roll as I'd expect if it was really a puncture. Yeah. You know, the car would be just rolling on its axis a little bit more. And it's not getting trying worse to deduce well. what it is. Yeah, yeah but, but no obvious visible damage apart from that. So, mm. so, yeah, obviously, as you become more experienced, he couldn't have known that. That was a very specific problem. But, um, yeah, once you've been in a race car a long time, you're probably get to the bottom of it quicker and work out is this something i can just carry on with or not and you address this in your youtube video you say where can i where can i find such a fascinating uh, piece of uh, not that you need our help your views are insane at the moment but where can we send our, our listeners and viewers to go and watch your videos 
So if you just search for Brad Philpott on um, on YouTube or through the visor is the name of the series, that particular video will have been called British Grand Prix, your questions answered through the mm. visor. Um, but there's a series that they're doing reasonably well. That particular video, the British Grand Prix one, for whatever reason, yeah. got a lot of views. The subsequent ones have still done pretty well, but not not quite the same heady heights as that one. That's that's how it goes with videos, though. Keep people come and find it, and uh, and the odd the odd the odd amount stay and subscribe, which which you seem to have uh, you seem to have done well. Um, but I've got one last question before you go, Brad. I'm going to give you two mythical seasons of funding, uh, and also I'm going to give you five years back in age. No offense. Which series now? I'm do going to you... need some more than that. <laughs> which okay, let's give you let's give you ten years. Where does that put you in your mid twenties? late 20s yeah 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 so 26 let's say uh, we'll give you that so i'm going to give you two seasons to kickstart uh your your career w- where are you going yeah so at 26 i'd already be way way too old for single seaters so um, we'll rule out anything single seaterish 26 is probably an excellent age to begin your top level gt3 career um so i mean a lot of the drivers are younger than that but that's where i would be that's where i'd be going i'd be looking at some uh, maybe a season of british gt um, with a good team, and then move on to a season of VLN in GT3 or NLS, as it's now called, the Nurburgrings in Germany. Oh, okay, so in a GT3, and from there, because I'm only giving you two seasons, I'm only granting you two seasons. Um, d- is there opportunities for like a good driver? Let's say you deliver, you like you have done in the past, you you win your your class. Is there is there those opportunities that exist that someone might go, that guy's brilliant, we should get him in our car. Yes, and just to give an example of that, there are there are opportunities. My um my friend and um, former um, adversary uh, is a driver with David David Pittard, and we both got through to the final of the Peugeot um, search for a factory driver from the UK back in 2013. I beat him in that at the time. It was like a shootout thing, and and you had to set the fastest laps on, on a number of different tracks in a Peugeot, and so I beat him to that. He has subsequently forged his own path separately, picked up a, a sponsor and put himself into the series that I just mentioned, British GT and then VLN. And by self-funding or his sponsor funding him for a drive in VLN in a GT3 car, he went and put it on pole, I believe, in his first race amongst a load of factory drivers. Always looks good. Um, showed very, very well in the race, immediately was picked up as a BMW factory driver and is now, since then, has, has won a load of other races. Now an Aston Martin factory driver racing in um, Le Mans series. So those opportunities are there. But it's you need to be able to put yourself in front of the um in front of those factory well, teams basically. Well, also you know you, you skipped the bit where he gets that sponsor, which is a dark art in itself. Yes, exactly, and and that's the and and the guy did a very very good job there. Um, there's a lot of hard work's gone on yeah. with him behind the scenes, but ultimately at the end of the day, there is a little bit of being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right person. Mm. Um, but yeah, you need to be able to have that initial opportunity to show how good you are and obviously the longer that opportunity is and the more practice you get the better job you'll do when you do get in front of the bigger teams so yeah so anyway yeah so if you could just put me in that time machine with a <laughs> with a, with a couple of million pounds that'd be excellent thank you uh, i'm working on it uh, everyone search brad philpot on twitter and bradley philpot on on youtube and you'll find that great content but the links will be in the show notes below brad thank you very much for your time thanks banners Uh, That's all we've got time for for this week's magazine show. But as Brad said, we encourage everybody to turn a wheel. So there's opportunities to come and do that with us at Missed Apex Podcast. September 3rd, you can come on track uh, at Buckmore Park. It's from mid-afternoon to evening, and then we go into the bar and back to a a hotel um, uh, and have a bit of a – have some food and some drinks. But you can be wheel-to-wheel with me, uh, with Brad Philpott, with Kyle Power, with Matt, 
trumpets and um, and a couple of other people. Uh, Catman is there on track as well. And also Chris Stevens is giving live commentary throughout and we produce some brilliant videos of, of the day too. So go to mistapexpodcast.com forward slash karting. It is starting to fill up. Now is the time to book or at least express interest. And if you want to get involved in sim racing with us, if you're an iRacing person, then email racecontrol at mistapex.net and we'll get you enrolled in our next season of the Mist Apex iRacing Cup, which will be starting in September as well. But wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Mist Apex Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.